Hello everybody, it's the PRL Book Club once again, the slug is here, and with him, i.e. me, are my two very good friends, Jono. G'day. And Big Al. Hello, it is absolutely wonderful to be here. Thank you everybody out there for the reaction we got to our last book club episode, Touchstones. There was a lot of positive feedback for that, so thank you everybody. Mm. But this time round, we are talking about... No Helmets Required by Gavin Willacy. We are, we are indeed. Yeah. And we, lucky enough to actually, uh, Big Al and I got to chat to Gavin. We sure did. Uh, a couple of days ago, so we'll, that's at the end of this podcast, so tune in for that. It's a really good chat. He was very generous with his time mm. and, and uh, gave us some really in-depth answers to our probing questions. The PRL's first ever interview. Yeah, Well correct. done, guys. We were pretty nervous. I won't lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> Just about actually getting it recorded like pressing record that was our biggest challenge but we got there yeah i'm really glad that we've chosen to do this because this story is bonkers it sure is <laughs> like yeah. this this story that uh no helmets required that um gavin willis has written is just a really crazy story i'm going to give you the blurb at, on the back as a bit of a an idea of what's in store but i i was gobsmacked reading that it's one of those stories that you can't believe you hadn't heard before. It was just um, every page turned around. You thought it can't get more outlandish, but it did. Mm. <laughs> Some would say it's a it's a very rugby league story, yeah. um, and, it, and it is one of those stories where people like me, who I call myself uh, super consumers of rugby league, I, I can't believe I'd never heard of this before. Yeah, but it is. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, but wow, what a good yarn! <laughs> And it could have only happened uh, at that in that time, in that period yes. of history. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting. Well, let me read this blurb, give everyone a bit of an idea of what we're talking about here. 1950s Los Angeles. Motor mouth sports promoter Mike Dimitro convinces 20 young American football players to join him on the trip of a lifetime. Dimitro called them the American All-Stars and flew them around the world to play rugby league a game none of them had seen or even heard of, never mind played. They were to play against the very best Australia, New Zealand and France had to offer. They took on world-class rugby players on the pitch, mixed with celebrities off it, and wooed the women of every town they descended on. Somehow they survived. Behind the media circus there were fights and flings, tragic illness and farcical court cases. Dimitro fought with authorities, teammates, and the law. He changed his name, his age, his home, and his wife time after time. Yet, his extraordinary life story is matched blow for blow by the All-Stars, who counted among their number a Hollywood stuntman, an Olympic medalist, and a future NFL champion. No Helmets Required presents this remarkable, forgotten story of international sport as told by the men who lived it. Yeah, so just it's an incredible story, and just to give a bit of further context, so it's the early 1950s in post-World War II Australia, international rugby league is proving to be very lucrative. Uh, 1951 saw France uh, wow the Australian public, they beat the hosts 2-1, uh, with a style of play never seen previously. That French happy football. Exactly. <laughs> and more than that, the tour turned a tidy profit, so people were flocking to the international game. And a few years earlier, during World War II, 
American bloke, Mike Dimitro. Uh, college football has been motor mouth, compulsive liar, small time hustler. Very rugby league. Very rugby league. <laughs> Essential character of the book, obviously. Caught a glimpse of rugby league while on a break from World War II duty. Uh, and when his football career petered out, Mike was looking to make a buck and the concept of the American All-Stars was born. So the early 50s were, of course, only a handful of years after World War II. Australians were enamoured with the idea and the ideal of the American, glamorous, charismatic, captivating, yeah. and of course, after the exploits of World War II, leaders of the free world. <laughs> uh, and it was a combination of Mike's relentless sort of lying and persuasive nature and Australia's thirst for all things American that made this concept possible. But the question is, who were the American All-Stars? Yeah. Very, very good question. Uh, in theory, they were the best gridiron players America had to offer, and they were about to revolutionise revolutionize the way rugby league is played and catapult the international game to stratospheric heights. In reality... <laughs> that was a theory. <laughs> that was a theory. In reality, it was a ragtag bunch of college kids who had never actually heard of the game of rugby league. They were just keen on an adventure and were willing to go on with the flow for a once-in-a-lifetime trip to the other side of the world and, you know, without even caring what they were doing. So it wasn't quite the cream of the crop, more like whoever Mike could get. Yeah. Uh, in saying that, there were some very good athletes uh, in the squad, including some who'd reached the heights of college football, but there were also some complete passengers. Overall, the primary objective was to line the pockets of Mike Dimitro, and he would say whatever was necessary to make sure it happened. So that's a bit of context uh, to the book. And where do you get the idea that this was even a feasible thing to attempt to do? <laughs> well, he he saw a, a glimpse of rugby league while he was uh, stationed yeah. at Port Moresby. And like most people who, uh, in their first introduction to the game, he thought it was brilliant. He was enamored <laughs> with it. He was like, he, he loved it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because I think at that time, rugby union was a bit doer. Uh, apparently, and so rugby league was sort of like a revolutionary. It was exciting people in in America too. We'd yeah. seen it in the decades previously. So uh, he saw an opportunity, and he was a guy who, you know, seemingly just saw a, an opportunity for a quick buck and thought he, he was. He definitely had motivate. Like he was just easily motivated by money, I guess. So like, and, well, and, and, and the things that stand in his way, and and multiple attempts at starting a American football career that failed. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he, he was he was actually like a very good footballer in the college days, played in like the Rose Bowl, those big yeah. college... and he tried out for some professional teams as well. Yeah, that's he? right. Yeah. So he was a decent player himself. And mm. like I say, he got a, a decent bunch of athletes, yeah. uh, not necessarily the cream of the crop, but some very good American footballers to, to play in Australia against the best yeah, <laughs> Australia yeah. had to offer. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite incredible. I, I think it's funny, sorry, just from reading the book, there's a bit where... Even after a few attempts to kick off his American football career and it not going anywhere and deciding to, to start putting together this ludicrous tour, yeah. in the middle of organising the tour, he still had one more tryout for an uh, American <laughs> football team. He just said, he went, oh, I just want to see. No, 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 okay. <laughs> no, I just think the, the idea of the tour, like it, it's, a, it's a wonderfully hilarious story, but when it's, it's also, like we said at the top, it's completely ridiculous. Like in... Any professional sport, how can you get a team of, of people that have never played, let alone a sport like rugby league, right, which is really violent, like you can do some serious damage. Um, it's a bit like, like having an amateur boxer go up against a pro, like it, it's, it's really significantly dangerous stuff. Mm. Um, and yet this team came and, and toured 
everywhere. Yes. On the, on the basis of like a whole bunch of lies too. A, a yeah, bit of lies. Yeah. yeah. A bit of lies. Because he sent out a whole bunch of press releases saying that they've been practicing for seven years. And they, the, the reality was they didn't even know what rugby league was even when they got to Australia. They only figured out when they got to, oh, we're playing rugby league. What, what is rugby league? So, and he kept having people falling out of his squad, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, through like, you know, uh, both injury and disease. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah. So Mike, Mike Dimitro, we should sort of spend a bit of time talking yes, about should. him. So yes, we in, should. So in the later interview, uh, Gavin sort of likens him to Don King as sort of like mm, a yeah, okay. motor mouth sports promoter. I, I agree with that. I also saw a lot of similarities to being like a poor man's Donald Trump. Uh, because <laughs> another Don. Because he's like a you know compulsive liar. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of embarrassing to all the people yeah, around yeah, him. Yeah. He's like say these <laughs> speeches about, where's the broads? shake their head and be embarrassed and, and has a way of spinning things so that you know yeah, yeah like, whatever happens whatever he's saying is the truth whatever happens what he, what he, what he, what he, how he meant it to go right? yeah exactly yeah. and just totally shameless about it like just not paying checks and just like courts chasing him all yeah. over the country he's just like I paid the check what do you mean <laughs> so uh, he was a but I mean is this is this whole podcast just an excuse for you to do that accent is that, is that all is that what we're well, doing that's the voice I had of Mike Dimitro like, hey what, what you doing hey, <laughs> hey what are you talking about <laughs> well I, I think because like, I doubt that was the accent because he spent a lot of his time in uh, LA but mm. I think he arrived from the Ukraine with his family and sort of the rust belt so maybe there was a bit of a in the book I had him with like a, um, a sort of a, bo- a South Boston sort of accent oh yeah yeah. give it to us oh god one on the spot <laughs> Uh, no, I'll, I'll come back with it later. <laughs> <laughs> Let him workshop that for a little while. Boston accent's a hard one to, to, to craft as well, because it's, like it's like American, but also Australian, with because like, they drop the R's. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Well, there, there was one bit I, I wanted to sort of read out, which sort of encapsulates um, Mike and how sort of embarrassing he was. <laughs> so, like, this is a bit where Ted Grossman is talking about the first reception they had in Australia, um, where Mike got up and said, hey, thanks for the wine and the cookies. Now, where's the brides? Yeah. <laughs> and Tesla, it was so embarrassing, we decided then and there that he can't speak for us. It's just uh, hilarious stuff. See, I, I don't think that's that bad. I think that's, I think you could almost argue that he would, that, and I'm sure he probably did argue that he was, uh, you know, playing off the character of the um, I'm not obnoxious sure. American. That, that could, yeah, and at that time as well, where like TV wasn't in Australia at that point, so Australia was still relatively isolated from a um, like internationally. So yeah. that could have just been put down to like, oh, that's the fast-talking American character. They're all yeah. like that, and that's, yeah. just, and that's just what it is. It probably would have been because because he was so different. Everyone would have endeared him. And let's not forget this to the broads. 1950s Australia. That's right. Like white conservative as you can get yep. anything an American said would have been potentially shocking exactly <laughs> and that's why that's what I meant it was that sort of cocktail of Australia's sort of desperation to be liked by Americans yeah. that's sort of what made this work this actually succeeded to an extent I'm not necessarily on the field but they had people flock to watch them they had 65,000 people come to watch the second game or second yeah. or third game they played against the Sydney team at the SCG that's almost a record crowd at the SCG. Yeah. If you are, can you follow the, the PRL Instagram account? I've posted a photo of right. a photo of a photo of that mm. game. And there were like five thousand people locked out. They had reception after reception. Lord Mayors with dining. But that's and that's one of the things them. that really stuck out to me is how 
uh, like uh, an incredible part of this story is that along the tour, so they went to you know heaps of different towns, Sydney, Brisbane, all up and down New South Wales and mm. Queensland. Everywhere they went, they were met with a, a civic reception. Like yeah. They had a, a lavish dinner, like a gala There thing. are Americans here. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's 13 just guys. Yeah. Like anybody, could, it could have been us. It could have just, there weren't, there were nothing, they were just regular people. They and just, like, I, I, think, they were, I think they in, were slightly different. In most of those instances, they were just happy someone was visiting the town. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> um, but I think the best example you were saying before about you know people just keen to impress Americans mm. is the fact that this tour got green lit yeah, by right. Australian rugby league administrators on no research whatsoever <laughs> on the on the say so of what Mike said he had set up. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I much. think um, Harold Matthews, I think, was the um, of which the competition is named after. It was the the key administrator. I think mm. in getting this thing off the ground. He was sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. He's he's legit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And there's also a funny bit, like, as he sort of went around to each town, the journalists would, you know, ask the, him and the Americans questions because they were, you know, authorities on the games. Like, <laughs> what do you think, rugby league? What, what sort of rule changes would you make to rugby league? And Mike, in one of the instances, made a few suggestions, so like making it a 15-minute four-quarter game. One, uh, one forward pass. One forward pass, <laughs> <of> like, <laughs> i.e. change it to American football. So that was the... Uh, the suggestions uh, from Mike. Look, we're lucky, given that the uh, <laughs> the administrators at the time were, were so happy to facilitate the Americans that yeah. they, those weren't rules written into the rule book for eternity. Yeah, that's right. For these Americans. It was a pretty, pretty grueling tour of Australia, especially. <laughs> like, they had a game every, like, two or three days. They had a function yeah. every night, yeah, basically. But, but they had no idea... What toll those games games were going to take on them? That's yeah, right. physically. I, I, I found reading this book like whilst thoroughly entertaining, it was mentally exhausting because mm. everything like the, the the story's broken out like uh, on a, um, a game by game basis, right? Mm. So a game against Australia, a game against Queensland, a game against New South Wales. Yeah, and that, they would they would have been absolutely brutal games. Yeah. Um, but like you said, the schedule was a space of like two or three days between. Yeah. Um, basically lining up in front of professional rugby league teams <laughs> and getting hammered. Because you don't get paid for days out yeah. off. <laughs> having a, a function with like the Lord Mayor, having a massive lunch and drinks, two hours <laughs> later playing a game of rugby league, <laughs> three hours later getting on a train to go to Dubbo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just too funny. But then like the length of the tour as well. So after you go through all the Australian games, of which there was um, 25 or something, mm. there was a lot of games. Mm. Then they went to New Zealand and did the same thing again. <laughs> and then after that... They somehow went to France. <laughs> France. Not only went to France, played the French national team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who had just beaten Australia. That's right. Yeah, well, so. But post-war, we know what happened during the war to French rugby league. Well, I mean, they were still at their heights at that point. They, yeah, they recovered right. after post-war and, and they, were, they beat Australia in 1951. Yeah, that's and true. Home and away. And, you know, maybe it's not a coincidence that French rugby league started going downhill from that point <laughs> after playing the American All-Stars <laughs> in 1954. But yeah, it was also interesting to see the sort of injuries players would get. Like, it wasn't sort of your hamstring or your ACL. It was like boils. Oh, the boils story is quite sad. <laughs> and, and of course, polio. Well, there was also a polio yeah. uh, um, incident where Jack Benetti contracted polio and had to leave the tour. That was actually right. quite a I'm sure gout would have, from all the functions, yeah, right. would have been a I think, problem um, as well. I think you, the, the lack of, of, of game-related injuries probably uh, speaks to, I think, after... Everyone worked out what was going yeah. on. The, most of the opposing teams went pretty easy on them. Yeah, and, um, and the referees especially. Yeah, especially they, in those first half. The referees games. did some good game management, yeah. making it a little bit right. making it competitive. <laughs> they, they allowed blockers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, in an era of like three point tries, I think there was one game that was like sixty five to forty seven yeah. or something. <laughs> it was like mm, it didn't quite make sense, but um, yeah, it was quite incredible. But other things that were, were quite interesting in, t- in that in relation to that tour and just the time about the, you know how things change and how things have stayed the same over the years is like the nature of the newspaper wars. So there was like oh, one yeah, side yeah. of the the press that was all for it, and basically a PR. Um, yeah. the, so the, the ones there, the, the, the paper that had a financial interest in it. Yeah, was, yeah. Was and then the it. other side were just calling it calling it out for what it was, yeah. which is just like, you know, a bit of a sham. But in saying all that, they still made money and somehow got to France, you know, three months later yeah. to play against the French national yeah. team. It's just... Uh, One of the things I found really good reading about um, on that, like the, this, the Sydney media landscape, is the how much uh, rugby league talk just dominated everything so mm. okay, there was no TV but there was about seven radio stations where yeah. all they would talk about was rugby league and yeah, in Sydney that's still the same I suppose yes. but there's a lot of other stuff that gets in the way Yeah, <laughs> back then the all rugby league all the time yeah that's right there was a lot of front page stories uh, about Mike and the All Stars including yeah. Mike being like served a writ by the courts and <laughs> all sorts of things so he was quite a character but there was also a side cast of incredible rugby league legendary figures that was also good to read about because a lot of these names like Jack Gibson, Clive Churchill, Daly Messenger, Jersey Flegg, Harold Matthews, just sort of, especially Jersey Flegg, Harold Matthews, just sort of heard the names, didn't really have any context, just knew that they were characters. So actually reading and sort of being transported to that time in the 50s where they were actually big wigs and sort of movers and shakers. And I hate to bring it back to administrative decisions again, Mm. but... Yeah, now all I know of them <laughs> is very bizarre, bizarre um, administrative directions. But, hey, pillar of progressive rugby league, administrative chucking it right. Oh, oh, yeah. like, <laughs> best example you can think of, almost. Well, that's right. This book is actually like, it ticks pretty much all the pillars of progressive rugby league. There's a lot of chucking the ball around physically, like a lot yep. of tries yep. being scored. Sometimes forward. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's a lot of, uh, of humour involved. It's hilarious. Uh, book and yeah, maybe not the other pillar about uh, progressive. Uh, <laughs> like what do you stand values. for? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and where are the broads? The broads? Yeah. <laughs> That's maybe not a progressive value, but it ticks a few others. Winning wasn't wasn't uh, the primary no. objective there. But the good thing about the the sidecast was the little anecdotes you got about each of those players, and I wanted to read out a bit um, about their farewell uh, reception that they had when they were leaving the Australian um, tour. And this is Jersey, Jersey Flegg, who was sort of absent for most of the, the book until this point. But the, it reads thusly. So Jersey Flegg gave an amusing rambling speech. I really don't know where to start. <laughs> so many things have happened since the American All-Stars came to Australia. The, the All-Stars have done something that will put rugby league on the map all over the world. Mike, you will find the people of Australia behind you. Australia has broken the ice. And then the Americans lined up behind Flegg and co. and all sung... Now is the hour when we must say goodbye. Can you imagine, like, um, the Australian kangaroos at the end of a, a British tour getting up on stage and singing, like, yeah. <laughs> David Clemmer singing, like, Amigos para siempre. <laughs> Amigos para siempre. No, I don't think it would Amigos happen. Amigos para siempre. Yeah, exactly right. So that's just, like, the interesting anecdotes. And another one was um, in, in that sort of instance, there's the only dissenting voice came from a little old man who stood up at the back of the banquet hall well, what do you all know about that? I founded the league. Without me, there'll be no dinner tonight. And they didn't even give me a mention in the speeches. And then a stranger asked, who are you? Me, I'm Daily, I'm Daily M. I'm the master. So I'd never heard of any sort of quotes from Daily M. 
before. That was the first one I've ever heard. And one other and anecdote. It's yeah, that's right. How dare you? One other anecdote about Dalian, which uh, just cracked me up, was this Ted Grossman remembering one of the first meals they had, one of the first receptions, where he, he remembers a meal at the Tattersall's Club uh, for one moment, and he says, Dally Messenger was like the Babe Ruth of rugby league. He sat there at the top table. He's eating away, then stops, does this ah sound, pushes back from the table, and hocks one between his legs. <laughs> Unbelievable. He, he, Dally Messenger just, like, vomited at the table. Just, yeah, let's not... Uh... Never mind uh, obnoxious Americans coming <laughs> over here. Yeah, I like that anecdote as well because I've, I've always viewed um, Dally M as just sort of this silent, yeah. um, mystical you know, creature. Yeah, like the, like the LRH of rugby league, right? He's just, you've got his portrait on the wall and you turn and salute it or whatever without actually knowing anything about the yeah. band himself. But uh, there you go. There's, there's some colour to yeah. him. That's Table gobs. Yeah. That's what he's about. <laughs> That's right. And there was also Jack Gibson who was like apparently a bouncer at like a sort of gambling den it was sort of drive around sort of uh, you know underground figures of the Sydney gambling scene mm. and crime scene mm. so he was quite a character which I, I didn't know, really know about Puy Aubert the French legend oh, yes. uh, Le Pipette I think he's called he was um, the greatest rugby league player France ever produced and apparently during the game that they played against France um, during a break and play, just share cigarettes with the crowd. He just like <laughs> bum a smoke while he's waiting for the plane to restart. It's not his job to tackle. <laughs> his job to tackle. So just little anecdotes like that really uh, brought the the story to life. So, look, all I could think about reading this book was uh, the circumstances under which this could happen today. You know, if Madagascar, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> rang up the Australian Rugby League and said, "Look, we've got a team here. We've been playing for years. We want a tour. Let's get this happening." <laughs> yeah, you know? well, I mean, they're definitely. <laughs> Similar, like modern day similarities, uh, like rugby league getting enamored by a fast talking. Well, fast talking is maybe disrespectful, but still a private promoter to play games. Mm. You know, to crack the US market, yeah, like you yeah. know, hashtag Denver Test and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> like, it's there was quite farcical things that happened there with the um, the under capacity stadium and the, the New Zealand players getting stranded on the way home and like yeah. Marty to power missing the next game and all that sort of stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, we're fool me once, shame on you, me. Fool me twice, no, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right, so yeah. we're gonna we're, we get we get fooled. So this may be a difficult question to put you on the spot with, but if organising a tour with no players and no ideas and uh, not having ever seen a game before doesn't break that US market what's going to <laughs> well it's a very good question I mean the, the thing is they were decent athletes like I said before there were some players who um, were very good American football players so they knew about contact and tackling and all that sort of thing and they were actually bigger than most of the Australian athletes yeah. they were playing against yeah. so they had the the ingredients to be good rugby league players if it was done properly uh, if they were given some training if they had in fact been practicing before they came maybe they would have taken to it and maybe could have taken off because in the early 50s the nfl hadn't taken off it was college football was still yeah, the, the, it was still the popular form of the game so there might have been a, a, a small window to make it work oh, and yeah. uh, if I, and also like after six or seven games actually started playing okay they started winning a couple of games yeah. surprising a few teams they almost beat queensland in in one of the games at the gabba uh, and then they, they had the odd victory in New Zealand and and France as well. So, Is yeah. this before or after they clued on to what this whole tour was about and went a little easier, do you think? Yeah, I think they, def- they definitely, opposing teams definitely went easier than the first half dozen games. But I got the sense that um, once they hit 
Queensland and once they went to New Zealand, they were genuine games. Yeah. And I think they also had some ring-ins as well when the boils and, and all the, <laughs> the grunts. Yeah, this boil outbreak. <laughs> um, when that hit them. So that obviously helped as well. Yeah, but that's true. It, it gave me the sense that if it was done properly, then maybe there could have been a little window where America... I, I think the biggest opportunity back then, it's, it's gone now, yep. was it, it could have been a, a, a good off-season fitness... Um, a way to keep fit for college and NFL players because yeah. back then like weight training regimes and all that sort of stuff hadn't really been developed so yeah. uh, when you know, when the NFL slash college season was over you play uh, rugby mm. um, to, to stay fit mm. um, but and that would have been really good to build a base of awareness of the game and it could have just existed on its own but it, it's like it's similar to you know lamenting the loss of French rugby league it's the, the, the its popularity could only have happened in a very um, unique set of circumstances yeah, which just will, know, will, know, will never exist again mm. um, and so trying to crack through now really hard mm. Mm. yeah that's right reading that book you just think to the current day and all the conversations we have about maybe cracking the American market uh, yeah it just seems difficult um, possible perhaps to get a, a slight niche but yeah just seems very very difficult yeah sevens um, <laughs> maybe nines, eights. Nine, but there were plans towards the end of the story. Uh, there were plans for um, America to be admitted into the very first rugby league World Cup mm. being held in France, where they everyone was obviously so enamoured by the incredibly successful tour, which would have been. I mean, we can only dream of what what may have been, but that could have again been another way to get, yeah, uh, you know, to crack that market at the right time. Imagine that, though. Like. Yeah. <laughs> But it seemed like the, the English administrator, I think Bill Fallowfield, who was the head of the RFL in England, he, he seemed to be, the, he just wasn't that interested. I mean, he was interested, but he, he saw it for what it was, to be fair, which is a mm. bit of a sham. Um, <laughs> but he, but he you know, didn't have the imagination to see how the sham could potentially work one day. But didn't he, um, maybe I'm getting my my names incorrect, but wasn't didn't Fallowfield also block, he blocked the American admission mm. and they also suggested well if we're going to let in America let's let in Canada as well um, but also Italy and Yugoslavia and a mm. couple of other countries that could have easily gone to France yep. to play in that tournament who actually had legitimate domestic competitions yeah that's right I, um, I so right. part of me sort of thinks oh, maybe he just you know, he just wanted to be he just he, he just wanted all the power yeah yeah perhaps um, and I, I do believe there was another uh, like a um, another administrator that was also trying to crack the US market yeah. for the RFL um, that yeah well yeah. once again there's like two disparate parties you know working sort of against each other uh, yeah. which is sort of it's the way it's been in, in the US rugby league <laughs> for the last uh, 20 years so quite Russia, a story yeah. but still an amazing tale yes alright well let's hear from the author himself yeah Jono and Big Al caught up with him during the week yeah uh, and, and we went deep you know we, we asked some uh you know, questions not only about the book, but we ask also about, uh, you know, the nature of rugby league in France and also the UK. Got his thoughts on that. So, yeah, he was very generous with his time and and uh, and helped us out. So yeah. we appreciate that. He was he was quite a crook as well. So he'd been taken with the, the standard English Christmas cold. Oh, yes. Um, but that didn't stop him. Like a true rugby league man, he got up and he got the job done. <laughs> well, let's listen to that now. Yes, so we're talking no helmets required in our lo-fi studios, the Jono's apartment here. It's Jono Duncan here with my good friend Big Al. Say hello, Big. Hi, folks. Great to be here. 
And we're lucky enough to have the author of No Helmets Required, Gavin Willisey, on the line. Come in, Mr. Willisey. Good morning or good evening, whatever it is over there. And where do we find you today, sir? Uh, I'm at home um, in very, very grey England. Uh, my wife just said to me, why is it dark outside? <laughs> and I said, because it's England in December. <laughs> <laughs> it is literally dark in the, when it's... Uh, it's about half past nine or something so yeah you're, you're lucky to be where you are yeah well we've had a very humid week so um you know we're, we're kind of uh you know halfway in between is probably ideal now um gav before we get started on the book congratulations by the way a wonderful read um a lot of our australian audience uh, may not have come across your name before so we're wondering if you could tell us a bit about your rugby league story because from what i understand you weren't born into rugby league as such no, mine's um, probably a bit different from most rugby league writers and, and journalists and, and fans, really. But um, I was brought up in uh, Hertfordshire, it's just north of London, which is um, in a town called St Albans, or a city called St Albans, which uh, had no rugby league whatsoever. And the only rugby league we ever saw was on TV, but it was on BBC One on a... Saturday afternoon and in those days people who were miles away hours away from where the rugby league was happening still could know about it because it was you know shoved in their face really there's only three three channels on TV and one of them would show the games yeah. um, which would seem wonderful now uh, so I was brought up in a football household soccer um, absolutely uh, mad for it, completely besotted by it. Um, you know, several games a week, playing or watching, um, going to matches, watching on TV, all of that stuff. Um, but my my parents were from Lancashire, also from a football town. Um, but occasionally, when we went on holiday, they'd take me to a, a rugby league match. So, and they took me to Wembley a couple of times. So, I. I, I got to appreciate it and know that it was good fun um, and wasn't that different an experience than going to watch soccer. But then I, I sort of lost touch with it really. I, I, went, to, I went to Salford to university. Mm. Uh, ironically, despite living about a mile or two from Salford uh, Red's ground at the Willows, I only went a couple of times. Uh, I then did a year in Sheffield at university and only went to watch the Eagles once. Um, maybe because they they played on the other side of the city and, it, and I didn't have a car, so it wasn't exactly <laughs> it. And, I, really. um, and, th- and then that was it for a, f- for a few years. But then I ended up living with a, a, a mate of mine who, who was managing a pub, and in the pub they had Sky Sports. And at the same time, I, I moved jobs to go and work for Football 365 website um, mm-hmm. when it starts up. Uh, and we had Sky TV in the office. And suddenly, I was overwhelmed with rugby league. <laughs> it was on all the time. And I, it was almost a, a moment of, ah, oh, yeah, I remember this. Mm-hmm. Yet, I love this. This is brilliant. And it was, I was almost a reconversion. Uh, overnight, and this is in the late 90s, um, and I started going to watch London Broncos, and at that same year, they happened to get to Wembley for the Challenge Cup final, which was good timing. Mm. I'd been to, I'd just seen them a couple of times before that, and 
just things sort of fell together. But I, d- I definitely think it was an element of uh, I, working. I was working in football journalist and if you're working in the thing that's also your hobby yeah uh a dream job it was a dream job mm. but also you then need another hobby <laughs> you know <laughs> and i definitely think there was an element of rugby league replacing football as um my sporting obsession now alongside my my vocation yeah. Well, you're talking to two uh, absolute uh, rugby league mad, mad supporters over here, and I think we're both pretty big proponents of the idea that if you just can get enough expo- if you can expose somebody enough to rugby league, they'll realise that it's brilliant and they'll <laughs> latch onto it. And I think your story uh, is is quite familiar, and I think uh, holds that theory true. Um, uh, but we want to uh, uh, spend a bit of time getting uh, into the story itself. So I sat down and started reading this book, um, and after you, you go through the whole thing, you realise this is a, an amazing story, a, a, a bizarre story, and some would say like uh, a very, you know, air quotes, rugby league story. I'm, I'm curious to know, how did you find out about it? What, what sort of led you to, to follow it? And at what point did you realise you were in too deep uh, and you had to commit yourself to, to following the whole story through and producing this great book? Well... The last question. The last question is the big one. I'll come to that at the end. Um, it was. It was literally one article that I read in a magazine um, that doesn't exist anymore. It's called Our Game, uh, which was produced by. As, what, what you get in London is um, around this area. Are there lots of people a bit like me that they're absolutely passionate rugby league and they're tragic you know I say the, the zealousness of the uh, the convert you know the missionary um, and there's there's lots of people like who've completely become addicted to league and some of them produced this magazine called our game um, in, in from London and they had a feature in it by professor Tony Collins who's the RFL just yeah the American all-star touring in 53 I read about it I can picture of standing on a platform waiting for a train to reading it thinking oh my god what is this <laughs> this is mad. um i was very much into international rugby league already i, I think i'm attracted to the, uh, the the niche of the niche sort of market <laughs> so i'd already written a book about scotland rugby league which i'd involved with um so I thought, oh, uh, you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to write a book about American Rugby League, and this is going to be a section of it, or yeah. a couple of chapters. Um, so I'd researched uh, the, the, what happened in the, the 70s um, with Mike Mayer. Uh, I'd done the stuff about Milwaukee, Wigan Warrington played there. I'd got a load of stuff about from David Newey about the, from the 90s, Set up the AMNRL as it was. Um, I visited clubs out there when I went on a trip. Uh, basically, I had the whole story, and this was just the um, most interesting middle bit. But then, the more I researched it and managed to meet about six or seven of the players and interview them, uh, I realised that in fact this was the book. Mm. Uh, the rest of it was another project entirely. And the, and this, the all-star story was just one that had to be told in full. Um, and when you talk about getting in too deep, 
I'd say, yeah, about 12 years is too deep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started in, uh, well, about 2002, um, and it came out, first edition came out in 2013. And then the wow. paperback, paperback came out this year, which is uh, a new edition, hopefully uh, much better, I think it's better. Looks better, reads better, reads easier. Basically, the, one, the big turning point was uh, Mike Dimitro, for those who don't know, he mm. was the catalyst behind the, the tour. Um, one of the game's most um, outrageous characters, I should <laughs> Think's fair to say. That's, that's a big uh, statement in a, in a game that is full of notorious characters. To say that, yeah, um, to put, yeah, to, to say that he's a, he's one of the biggest. That's that says something about him. Yeah, he's he's a, he's up the, up there. He's he's uh, he's super league standard um, <laughs> uh, for, for rogue characters uh, who the game would have been poorer without. Uh, but he'd have been able to hand over his good early work to somebody else more uh, respectable then the game would be in an even better place but there we are um, his daughter contacted me I've been trying to contact her and she'd not been replied and suddenly she, she got back to me um, sent me uh, a shoebox of cuttings and bits and bobs and I said oh it's brilliant you know it's great I, I'd made a some changes to the book, added some stuff in, and then she said, "Oh, if you want, I'll send you some more." So, of course, <laughs> yes. And I was away. My uh, my wife literally rang me from the post office saying, "I'll come to pick up this box for you," and I can't even pick it up. It's so big. <laughs> the post office guys had to sort of help me put it in the car. It sits about a meter square, and it's full of basically it was basically Mike Dimitro's life. In there, um, and so I, was, I probably spent a year sorting through that, going through. It had all these like bank statements and hmm. uh, not shopping list, but not far off. It was it, everything. Yeah. And in a was jewel after jewel about about the All Stars, just amazing, amazing uh, nuggets of information and, and and things that actually changed the book entirely. You know, I, I've had to. If you write a history, you have to unless it's an academic one you have to assume some quite a bit mm. because you know unless you spend your whole life looking into never going to find out 100% what was true uh, I'd, I'd assumed a few things and uh, I'd assumed them wrong you know I had to rewrite it quite a bit it's probably back a couple of years at which point I thought I can't walk away from this I'm I'm, I'm fully submerged and yeah. I've got the responsibility to make sure that this is as good a book as the story deserves. Yeah. So you obviously mentioned uh, Mike Dimitro is the main protagonist in the book, and we've spent a bit of time chatting about him. Obviously, a quite a divisive character. Uh, after spending so much time researching his story, where did you land with this character? Lovable rogue, crook. Um, well, I had the, the, the there were sort of three strands of it. There was what the newspapers in Australia said about him. Yeah. Uh, he clearly absolutely full of it and he was a promoter who was a bit Bong King you know <laughs> that, that full of uh, outlandish claims then when I started to meet some of the players they said you know whenever you mentioned his name they just laughed <laughs> their initial reaction was to laugh um, and then say you know 
yeah, he, he was a rogue. He was a, he was a liar. He was a con man. Uh, but he got us on this trip of a lifetime, mm. and, and we, well, you know, they, they pretty much forgive him for everything. Mm. You know, classic things like one, when one of the players came to fly back, um, back from the, the trip, his air ticket. They were supposed to be going home via Hawaii, and his air ticket wasn't there because. Dimitri had flown one of his women out and taken up the <laughs> right, <laughs> And I said one of his women, you know, he did have several. And, and, and in the box of uh, uh, the box of stuff that his daughter sent to me uh, revealed that he'd had, you know, five, I think it was five wives, changed his name four or five times. Um, he, he moved around the country the whole time, pursued by various uh, courthouses and police forces um, so I, I came to the conclusion this was a this was a guy who was not to be trusted <laughs> but uh, was uh, somebody who to lead to lead up a, a promotional campaign rather than uh, be in charge of finance right. so um, obviously uh, he's one of the many characters that appear in your book but um, speaking of characters uh, as you, as you read, this, this story is littered with a, a side cast of, of lots of different people, most of which just happen to be absolute legends of, of the game. So names like Clive Churchill, Daly Messenger, Harold Matthews. Jack um, Gibson. Jack Gibson. Um, like, was there an aspect of, of, of that uh, throughout your research that, that surprised you or thrilled you the most? Uh, yeah, I, I just loved it when I kept coming across these people. Um, when I was researching it, I also read um, one of the Jack Gibson books, which was magnificent. I can't remember which one it was. One with the orangey cover, um, and uh, you know when you when you then stumble across Jack Gibson being mentioned in a article uh, from one of the Aussie papers about the tour. You know, the, uh, third grade player Jack Gibson gets a run out against the Americans. You know. <laughs> And then it turns out, you know, they're going to bar that he's a bouncer at, you know, that's run by a gangster, you know, and Hollywood stars are in there and all that sort of stuff. And it all sort of linked together. And I just thought, okay, I'm picturing scenes in the movie, you know, it's all it's all coming together. And there were lots there were lots of moments like that where you just thought, what? (laughs) Over there as well. (laughs) Now. The All-Stars themselves were mostly very good athletes, uh, but essentially they were a bunch of college kids looking for an adventure. And as you said earlier, you got to meet a bunch of them. What were they like, and could they believe that someone wanted to write about them? They were very... Uh, they were tickled pink, as we say, yeah, that, that someone wanted to write a book about. Some of the, yeah, some were a bit standoffish at first, because I think they were a bit suspicious. They wondered, why this guy from England to come over to speak to them about this tour and the more I found out about it I think some of them were thinking have, have any of their misdemeanors <laughs> 60 years later some illegitimate grandchildren have come to the fore perhaps when we did a launch uh, of the, the book in America at USC in, in Los Angeles uh, six I think six players were there uh, with their families and I read some extracts from the book and uh, one of the the highlights of the whole experience was uh, Ed Demergent, who's one of the top players in the team and, and a great, really 
lively character. He was he's literally in tears and with laughter when I'm reading about being thrown out of the uh, I think it was the Coogee Bay Hotel, one of the hotels there, um, and accused of turning it into a brothel. <laughs> I tell you what, to get thrown out of the Coogee Bay Hotel is quite an achievement. Let me tell Even you today. <laughs> Well, it was a hotel in Coogee Bay, anyway. Um, and at which point his, his now wife is looking at him with sort of dagger's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of shifty glances between them all, and I'm trying to work out who were any of these with these women in 1953? <laughs> or were they all single? I think they were all single. Um, but they, you know, once they got talking about it, it's the usual thing with old folk isn't it that you know they might not be able to talk about yesterday but they can talk about 60 years ago in, in great detail especially when they're with each other and and sort of stories bounce around um, and the memories come flooding back so they they absolutely loved it yeah sadly quite a few of them have, have passed away since since i met them and uh, their numbers are dwindling mm. it's also quite hard to get in touch with them because you know they're in their eight, late 80s summer in the 90s and uh, they're not too hot on email and social media yeah. so I've, I've sent quite a few letters that have not been replied to and I, I, so I don't know whether they're still around or not. So you, you mentioned that um, most of them or if not all of them were, were talking about the tour um, with with fond memories was there was there anyone that uh, that you've spoken to that um, didn't didn't think that way. Had a different attitude towards it. Um, not the Australian one. Uh, there were some that went to France because you know there was the second tour to France, um, which most of them loved. But there were one or two who who were a bit more downbeat about that. I think there was there was a sense of regret that nothing came of it. Um, mm. That you know they'd had this great adventure and then most of them never saw a game of rugby ever again, let alone played in one. Mm. Um, and that, that was a, a, a great shame, you know, the fact that there were, I think, in total about 30 players went on the trip uh, and they were lost to the game. Uh, fairly it, typical, I guess. Just on that, Gav, we, we sort of see throughout the book some ill-fated attempts to get rugby league started in the US, you know, from the 50s all the way to the 70s. In your opinion... Was rugby league ever a genuine chance of getting a foothold in the US? You know, if Mike Dimitro's uh, priority was more than just lining his pockets, or if the Australian board had a bit more foresight, or, or if Bill Fallowfield uh, had a bit more endeavour? Possibly. Possibly. I think probably um, the time when they had buy in an interest from the San Francisco 49ers and Rams yeah. and Beast Lions and. It felt, read, you know, we're only doing it as a historian, reading what was there um, from that perspective, uh, the evidence that, that I found. I think there was a possibility they could have got a competition up and running. Mm. Whether it would have led to anything, I don't know. Of course, the NFL wasn't what it then, wasn't what it is now. Um, and, the, and the players were part-time, you know, in the same way that rugby league players were. They might not have... Um, they, they might have acted as full time for a few months of the year, but then the rest of the year they had to get other jobs. Um, so it, it, it was there was potential there, but it would have needed a, a big commitment from the RFL or uh, the Australian board 
to work with promoters in the states, and they were like, "We're going to make, we're going to make this happen." Um, and I'm talking about 1950s, not now. It may as well be now. Yeah. <laughs> the stories is uncannily similar to this. <laughs> They're very familiar to what we hear these days, aren't they? Absolutely. But there, I think um, the fact that uh, none of them um, were contacted by anybody uh, about rugby league other than um, Al Kirkland, who took it off his own back to go back to Parramatta. Mm. Um, he played the season with, with Parramatta and then went to Leeds. Good enough for Leeds to sign, made his debut, but couldn't get a work permit. Mm. Um, was pretty much shafted by the, uh, by the RFL, by by what I can discover, um, and and he, so he was a, he was a great loss to the game. But then I think some of my favourite stories from, from researching the book was things like discovering that um, uh, Don Lent, who went on the, the tour to France, um, he uh, he and a couple of the other players actually became teachers afterwards, and and he said he he used rugby league in school um, they, they played rugby league in, he was in Compton and South Central LA you know <laughs> to, uh, through the sort of 60s and 70s and, and they were playing rugby league there um, and, and one and Abadjian was, was doing that and Abadjian was refereeing a game when um, Mike Dimitro turned up on the sidelines and started shouting uh, good nature to peace so you know just the thought that this was happening, uh, no, I don't think anybody in the rugby league world knew. Mm. Uh, but nowadays, we'd know all about it because it would be uh, would be watching the yeah. clips on social media, wouldn't we? <laughs> um, I want to I want to sort of uh, take a pause and and ask you a, a bit about how you actually um, d- structured the book. So this is obviously a really thoroughly researched, like you said, there was a just a article after article and and, and piece of. Um, reference material, you know, coming out of everywhere, everywhere you looked. Um, what did it take for you to, to make the one, the, the visual style of the book? Because it's, it's quite unique in the way the pages are laid out, but also in, in the way you, you've written it um, in tone. Um, most of the time, we found that you sort of, you came across as almost a bemused observer of, of this tale that was unfolding before you. How did you go through that, that process to decide the, the right way to tell this story? Well, I think I went for the easy option on doing it logically. So starting from the, from the very first roots of this um, and then discovering that things were happening at the same time in different places. So that, that there was a few occasions where I discovered, you know, um, within days or weeks of each other, conversations were happening in different parts of the world that would lead to things coming together. Um, just in the same way that if if you, you, dis, you discovered it in 1895 uh, in in England and at the same time in uh, in the States, like, things are happening with the rules of games of, of football changing that ended up with American football and rugby league. You know, there's um, there were bizarre coincidences like that. But I, so I went through chronologically, and then I but I also wanted to write it in a for it to have a bit of energy and, and mm. pace uh, and some of the writers that I love reading like James Elroy and David Peace uh, people like, like um, 
mystery thriller thriller writers uh, they they write with this incredibly fast pace uh, to make you sound it make it sound exciting just as if you're living it now there's only a, there's a, like, only a certain amount that I could do but I wanted you to feel like you were you were there watching on mm. um, as this crazy story unfolded um, and, and the the images really came from what I had collected up and I thought when you, when you see these it brings hopefully brings the story to life and, and if I want you to think you're in 1950s LA uh, I need to help give myself uh, a chance of, of doing that by getting some images in there that will help yeah. picture it and that, I mean that's the I think the fact that I'm in England in the uh, t- 2010s and I'm writing about LA in the 50s and Australia in the <laughs> 50s and New Zealand and France um, to, to an audience that's primarily Australian or American really I've, I've got to use everything I can to because yeah. I, I and, and also I'm not assuming any, I'm not assuming anyone knows anything because I didn't know it mm. uh, if I was writing about where I live in the fifties, it would uh, there would be things that I would just, that I would probably not explain that, that would need explaining. Um, but hopefully, the, the the use of all the cuttings, uh, I, I wanted it to feel like it was a scrapbook, mm. a tour. Like if you've been on there and you'd collected all that stuff, travelling around, that that's that's what you'd have to show for it. And the designer, I was very lucky. Um, Duncan Olner is the designer for the publishers that I pitch publishers, um, pitch publishing rather, who were the publishers. Uh, that Duncan, uh, sort of top designer, and, and he just got the idea of it straight away. Yeah. Just ran with it and, and came up with some layouts. And I said, Yeah, you've got it. You understand <laughs> what I'm. And yeah, well, brilliant. Uh, well, it really works. It looks fantastic. And. And the punchy style of the writing, I was a really big fan of. Now, um, and it is sort of written in a, a thriller-type way because you don't really know what's around the corner. For instance, when I started reading the book, I would have had no idea that they also would have toured France, as you mentioned earlier, which is uh, quite a big shock. Now, the progressive rugby league fan out there is also a French rugby league fan. And, of course, uh, as we mentioned, the All-Stars took a tour to France in the Christmas of 53 54 Big, Big Al and I are actually taking our first tour of the south of France in 2019, did you know? Listeners out there, it's very exciting news. Uh, just wondering if you had any tips for us on our first uh, trip down there for, for the Rugby League Tragic. What should we take in? Carcassonne, Avignon, Perpignan, you tell us. Uh, well, they're all, they're all quite close together, so that's helpful. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been to all of those places. Um, Avignon is at, and the All-Stars went to all of those as well um, Avignon's absolutely beautiful and got the champion team at the moment uh, the stadium is like a sort of country rugby league ground there's not much there yeah. uh, artificial pitch and everything was open so I wandered in the dressing rooms and all that <laughs> um, uh, Carcassonne is very historic from a rugby league perspective as well and there's, there's bar, the thing with Carcassonne is there are rugby league bars and there's a culture wow. there if you do a bit of research you go to the right places you 
feel you're you're part of the the heart of the game. Uh, and Perpignan's yeah, brilliant. Um, again, a beautiful city and uh, a major rugby league stadium and somewhere really special. Uh, I've never I've not been to Toulouse yet. Mm-hmm. It's not on the list. Um, and then in between there are small towns like Limoux and Lesignon that, that have got elite um, clubs mm-hmm. uh, all got sort of very quaint little grounds a bit like um, yeah being, being up in uh, you know Cairns League or something like that yeah. you know one, one stand in a clubhouse but um, a lot of people who care and just on the culture of rugby league in France from your opinion from, from England uh, in your opinion, does is the is rugby league has it stabilised or is it still declining? Is it growing per chance? Like, what's what's your take? Well, I've just done a piece in Forty Twenty magazine. It's doing the current one. It's just come out about participation rates, and participation in France has gone up quite considerably in the last two years, which Fantastic. is really positive. They're juniors, they've got a huge amount of junior rugby league going on and uh, a lot of social rugby league. Um, so their issue is is adult participation and the semi-pro games mm. is, is, their, is their problem. Uh, somebody went to see uh, Carcassonne play at the weekend on on. Uh, Twitter and put a picture up and there's about eight people in the stand. I don't know where he was, been 2,000 and there were just eight on the opposite side. But, you know, I know crowds are generally in their hundreds, um, high, you know, a thousand, two, a 2,000 crowd gets reported as being a crowd, you know. Mm. Um, so, but I think what, what they've experienced is similar to, to New Zealand when the Warriors come in and Brisbane... When the Broncos mm. come in, it's everything's second tier, isn't it? You know, um, it kills the domestic one. comp. Yeah, it absolutely kills the domestic comp. Um, and the French are now scrambling for, you know, I think more clubs would want in English league if they could be because of this. Mm. Um, so participation, I think, is, is, is not uh, struggling anywhere near as much as it is in England. Um, but the, uh, from a commercial point of view, I think the elite clubs are finding it really, really tough. And in fact, Carcassonne seems to go bust every other year. Mm-hmm. You know, they're one of the major clubs in the, in, in the league, one of the most established. So uh, I think they struggle also to, to build on the history. If you, if you, you know, you read about the, the history of the game there, and it was a, the big city teams were. Great successes, you know, Bordeaux, Marseille, Paris, you know, out, mm. out of the big France, they all used to have teams that were winning the league, winning the cup, uh, getting huge crowds. And, you know, if you could pick which teams to lose along the wayside, uh, they wouldn't be the ones. Uh, and you left with, with villages, basically. Yeah. Um, which is uh, a massive challenge. And those, and those cities have been. The rugby in those cities that dominates is union now. Yeah. Now uh, let's cross the channel. Uh, you speak about France there, but 
the game in England, we're, we're actually uh, we're pretty new to the game in England. We're we sort of just been getting into it over the last year or so as we've started this podcast, and we're we're in love with it. We love what we see, but there's things that we don't quite understand. So, for us here in Australia, can you help uh, explain the divide between, firstly, the north of England, the rugby league stronghold, and the rest of the country, particularly London? And do you think that divide helps explain rugby league's continuing struggle to gain traction outside the M62 corridor? Oh. <laughs> we need another hour for this. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, take that bit by bit. So, obviously, you've got a geographical issue. In England, even though you can travel from... London to Manchester on the train in two hours and drive it in about four hours it's it's considered um, to be you know, culturally to be a long way from each other mm. um, and it's similar to uh, I think the, the, only, the only way to try and understand London and rugby league is to think of Melbourne yeah. um, and, and think of it as, as having no connection really with the rest of the game and has to develop its, its own culture mm. uh, and that was going really quite well in the 2000s um, there was a, a massive boom in a number of amateur clubs uh, and junior clubs there were lots of developments paid for by by the league uh, I, I worked in, in junior rugby league at that time uh, with a, a North London college team Southgate College which we, we set up from nothing uh, and we had a coach who'd come over from uh, from Melbourne doing a similar job and we, we produced in, in that club we produced a couple of Super League players uh, and and five or six others who played semi-pro and there was a production line uh, and there was a real um, enthusiasm for the game and, and at the same time the Broncos were mid-table Super League side and there was a feel-good factor about it um, unfortunately the, the uh, financial downturn in the late 2000s ended up affecting everything the RFL basically financially were, were really stricken um, and they laid off dozens and dozens of uh, development officers around the whole country around the whole of Britain mm. um, and London was really badly because the game wasn't in the roots of the communities it wasn't uh, it didn't have the buy-in from all the parents uh, it was too early to pull out um, th th that central um, support mm. I mean, it was a bit like you know, you're building a table uh, and, and you take four, three, or three or four legs away and expect it to stand up you know <laughs> It was a total disaster um, for the sport in London, and it's not recovered. Uh, there are some a smaller number of clubs that are doing well, like Brixton Bulls, for example, which, um, if you don't know, Brixton's infamous as a, a South London, a mainly black community in South London that's uh, very vibrant and uh, a lot of is a is a place that's on the up, uh, and they started as, a, as a, a kids team about 15 years ago, I think. And last week they announced, or this week they've announced that they're going to be in the new 
Southern Premier League, which is going to be, uh, which is a new competition year four, so supposedly one level below um, League One. Mm-hmm. So they're a great success story, um, and there are a couple of others around London. Um, the South London Chargers are going to be in, in there as well. So next year it looks like it could be more positive. It's been a it's been a bad time for the sport down here. It's only two, I think, two years ago or three years ago, I went to a presentation where one of the main the main guys at the RFL said uh, one of our plans is that London's going to have three major events every year. Now the London Broncos were out. There's going to be the Challenge Cup final, and two other big big events. So you know, you'd think an England international and uh, a Magic Weekend or Super League on the on the road game. This has not happened. Yeah, it's been. Mm-hmm. Been what it's been a challenge cup final and, and been an issue. Yeah. Um, if there was one uh, magic bullet you could give uh, to the game in the UK to make it expand, help it expand, uh, what would it be? That's that's a really really tough. I think there's so many little things that need doing. I mean, one thing is there's an obsession with expansion, which I'm. You know, be guilty of as anyone. Um, but at the same time, there's some towns in the country where participation going through to four. You know, like um, I know there's issues in Bradford and Oldham and places like that. There are rugby league town cities. They need this would be much easier mm. if you want another thousand people interested in, in the game is to go there and get them back. Um, it's a bit like I mean, you're talking about uh, eastern suburbs. Um, and mm. the rise of the air in Sydney. You know, does does the game in Australia target getting those people back to the league, or does it go to Perth and try and get more people yeah. there? It's, it's a tough one. I think um, I, I wrote in the. My, I've got a blog on the Guardian website. No help is required. And, mm. and last week I wrote about um, getting back on. And more games on uh, your prime time TV. I think if you said if you said you could do one thing, so one a magic bullet, I would say getting one Super League game on BBC television every week, time live match every week, free to air. Yeah. Well, as a as a rugby league fan living in. You know the the fishbowl that is Sydney or, or or Brisbane. That that really comes. That that just sounds completely bizarre. That there's not all games on free to air TV all the time. Um, but it probably leads me into my next question quite well. Being two rugby league fans living in the rugby league fishbowl that is Sydney, um, what do you think would be the biggest misconception people like us would have about the, the state of the game in the UK? Um. I would say uh, you would probably think that um, if Elliot Whitehead walked down the street in any city other than Bradford, where he's from, anyone would know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a minnow sport, is that what you're trying to say? No, no, nobody, uh, I mean, and Sam Burgess, I was going to say it about Sam Burgess, but... It's probably people would know who he was, um, but you know you, you can take uh, England's best players who have um, taught it up in the NRL uh, were on that 
prime time TV this autumn. I'll be making some gets golden boot, whatever you want to make of that that decision. But um, Tom Nakinson um, would not be recognised outside of St Helen Wigan, probably. Yeah. Um, it, it's just the size of the sport. The, the, the sport is, is very much, but extremely passionate. Yeah. Um, and and struggling to grow. Um, so I think, you know, when I've gone to Australia and, and read five or six pages of rugby league in the paper every day, I'm, I'm just in heaven. <laughs> it'd be, I, I think it'd be, it's the equivalent of um, an Australian soccer fan moving to, to England and thinking, oh, I'm not having to search out, or maybe years ago when you had to search out some coverage of the... Uh, the A League, yeah, and then you come over here and you can you just put a radio on and that's all they're talking about. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gav, thanks so much for your time. We're just about out of time, so we really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us once again. Congratulations on the book, No Helmets Required. It's such a an unbelievable story that, as a passionate rugby league fan, I'm kind of ashamed I never knew about the story before I read this book. This, this sounds like the kind of story that we should know about. Yeah. Like we should have known about this and been talking about it for years. For years, yeah. but here we are. So congratulations. I suppose it's like um, finding a dinosaur fossil on Oxford Street, and you know, being the, the guy who gets to dust it off. So uh, congratulations, and uh, uh, thanks so much for your time. It's an absolute pleasure. It's uh, you'll forgive only just coming to the story. We all we all think, how did I not know that? Yeah. That happens to me every week. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah. So that was the the chat. So thanks again to Gavin. And of course, you can uh, get the book. No helmets required. I think it's available. Gav was saying at Mascot Browns. Mm-hmm. Uh, which are opening a, a Sydney or Australian arm. So there's a number of copies available there, so get it from there. And he's also said that it's available at Dimmicks. So uh, if you're interested, we recommend it. Absolutely. I yeah, I, I was uh, reading with my mouth open, agape <laughs> at times, going there incredulously. Yeah. And it's also, just to, to wrap up, it was also quite nice um, the way that the the players 60 years on were remembered. Imagine in that scenario where, like, you know, you, you did something random in the 50s and then 60 years later, some bloke's like, hey, remember that tour you went on? I want to write about it. I did like how when we mentioned that to Gav, he said yeah. that some of the players were quite standoffish. Um, because, right. like, whoa, hang on did, a second. What, what have you found out? Didn't about want like, to be associated. Yeah, yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. Maybe, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's a good, yeah. But it was quite sweet that a number of them still kept in touch with each other and, um, you know, they you know had reunions. Yeah, they had reunions, and, you know, didn't they? Yeah. It was quite a, uh, you know... Obviously, at that age, you're quite open to influences, and that must have been a pretty influential part of their yeah. lives. Well, being like you know, 21 years old and playing in front of 65,000 people and, 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 on the other side of the world uh, in the 50s, when like, and like you said, civic receptions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, you've got no idea what you're doing. You get plonked on a plane, sent to Australia, and people are just going nuts yeah. just because you've turned up. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. Yeah. Just keep shaking your head. Yeah. Anyway, that will do us for this episode of the Progressive Rugby League Book Club. What's the next cab off the rank in about a month's time? Yeah, look, we've got two more to do in this off-season. We've got uh, Their Finest Hour by Andrew Marmot and True Professional 
by a guy called James Oddie, which talks about uh, Clive Sullivan, the, the great English uh, British captain. So looking forward to those two books. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Happy holidays to you all. And uh, we'll see you again in about a month's time. See you, fellas. See ya. See you all in Rugby League We Trust. Mm-hmm.